Let's go Colossians chapter 3. While you're turning there, uh, let me, I want to take a moment to show some appreciation for two different people. Uh, number one, last week uh, I was privileged to get to uh, preach in the Korean congregation that we host here in our church, and uh, whenever I have the opportunity to preach other places, I want to make sure that we get some of our other people, and so we have rotating deacons that, that preach uh, here sometimes, and Andrew Johnson did, uh, was up last week, and I happen to think he did a pretty solid job, and so, uh, for, so first of all, thank you, Andrew, for filling the pulpit. Um, I wasn't, you know, whatever. All right. Now, uh, we, we value the proclamation of God's word here, and uh, we don't just put anybody up on the stage. It's, it's people who have shown their humility and their, their desire to pursue the truth in the scriptures and open up the scriptures to us, and so uh, Andrew did a great job last week. Uh, the second person I need to show appreciation to is JB. Uh, you may not know, uh, but he has been sick a lot uh, for the last couple of weeks. He actually uh, has also had an incredibly busy weekend. Uh, he was in charge of doing a, uh, a youth retreat for a, a friendly church of ours, a church that we have a partnership with in Manchester. And so he traveled to, to uh, a little cabin to do a youth retreat on Lake Sunapi. Is that how you pronounce it? Sunapi. That's whatever. <laughs> I don't really care. All right. But he spent a lot of time preparing and a lot of time teaching without for a second shirking all of his responsibilities for us this morning. And so I uh, want to say thank you to him. Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we, um, we'll have it up on the screen uh, in a little while. We also have some scattered throughout the room and the little, little shelves that are under the seats. So if you want to awkwardly reach under the person in front of you, uh, you can grab one of those Bibles. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we uh, would love to give you that one. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin, to draw people to repentance. We believe that it's the primary means by which God uh, makes himself known to a world that doesn't know him. Uh, we also believe that it's effectual and accomplishes everything God intends for it to accomplish. And what we mean by that is this, open up your Bible and start reading and see what happens. Maybe God will use it for some things. In fact, I'm pretty confident that he'll use it for some things. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, please take that one home and uh, we, we can hit the ball running here. So we're on the back end of a series that we've been in for several months now. Uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, uh, some of y'all are wondering if we're ever going to do anything else. Uh, July. That's when we're going to do something else. All right. But we're now on the back half. We're rolling downhill. All right. We've got a, several, a few more weeks and a few more words that we want to roll out, but I think we've done some good stuff. The series is called On the Same Page. The premise is incredibly simple. We are uh, defining major vocabulary words in the life of the church. Words like uh, gospel and scripture. Words like worship and baptism and uh, worldview and things like that. We talked about all kinds of great stuff. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about citizenship. Right? And so we said that for the follower of Jesus, for the Christian, citizenship takes on the form of foreign cultivators. If you were here, you remember. If not, go check out the stuff on SoundCloud. That's where we host our sermons. All right? So foreign cultivators. That For the follower of Jesus, they are to spend their days, even though we are citizens of a kingdom to come, we are to spend our days seeking the welfare of the city that God has seen fit to place us for the meantime. That we look for ways to serve her. Look for ways to show the bigness and the goodness and the beauty of our God to her. 
We share the gospel here and look for ways to make things better. Now, we can't make everything better, and we wait the day when Jesus will make all things better. But, hey, listen, sitting around being lazy because we don't have to worry about that because it will all be fixed later is not our, our mindset at all. We, uh, we work diligently until Jesus comes, right? And so citizenship for the life of a Christian, for a follower of Jesus, is, takes on the role of a foreign cultivator, all right? So we've got a few more weeks and a few more words we want to roll out. And so our word this week is sin. And everybody got a little awkward. Sin. People have ideas about what sin is and isn't, don't they? Everybody walked in this room this morning with a preconceived notion about what sin is is, right? For some of y'all, it's a mean old Bible-thumping hellfire and brimstone preacher with a big belly and a bad comb-over. Wants to rob you of all your joy, make you toe the line on the straight and narrow. Am I wrong? <laughs> no. For others, when we think of sin, it's more along the lines of everything that we think is wrong with the world. Emphasis on what we think is wrong. Whether it's, you know, people who are lazy or people who are selfish or maybe it's people who don't take care of the environment or for a lot of us, it's just that jerk who doesn't use a blinker and drives in the left-hand lane too slow. Yeah, all of us have this idea of what sin is and is not. We all kind of walk in the door thinking, yeah, that's what sin is, or that's what sin is, and we usually have a list of things uh, that, we, that we like to think about or maybe don't like to think about. All right? But when I say sin, I want you to be thinking this. A new enemy. A new enemy. Colossians chapter 3. The letter to the Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the ancient city of Colossae. All right, that's how it gets its name. Uh, in, in Asia Minor at the time, modern-day uh, Turkey. I almost said Greece. That's not true at all. Uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Uh, he's upset. It's okay. I'm, I make myself feel like that when I'm preaching too. All right. Colossians is written to the church at Colossae, which is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. All right? And the problem that Paul is having to address is that there are some uh, false teachers that have crept into the church who are saying some pretty crazy stuff, mostly along the lines of, Jesus is great and all, but he's also really busy, so you should probably pray to this angel. And if you do so, he'll probably give you some special cool powers. It's weird. And so Paul writes a letter to the Christians in Colossae to say, no, actually, Jesus is all you need. He is big. He is sufficient. He is not troubled by you coming to him. In fact, he has commanded you to place your faith only in him. And to think that you need to go through some weird angel mediator is actually the opposite of what he wants from you. All right? And so Paul spends... The first two chapters of Colossians, the first half of Colossians, unpacking the bigness and the beauty and the sovereignty, the overarching command and control of God. And then in chapter 3, he takes a turn and look at this. Starting in verse 1. If then 
You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus says, or Paul says that because we have placed our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, that Jesus makes us his and that we get to be with him forever. And that in the meantime, until that forever comes, we should spend our time looking to get more and more and more of him. So set your mind on the things that are above. Now, if you were here for any length of our series, we, we talked once about the word worldview. All right? And so if you weren't here, let me give you a rundown. Uh, for the Christian, a worldview, the lens that they see everything through, is the beauty and loveliness and overarching value of Jesus. All right? That everything in our life, in our, in our plans, in our calendar, in our pocketbook, everything we do is filtered through what gets me more of Jesus. All right? And so uh, we can even say good things like, and great things. It doesn't matter what it is. Everything takes a back seat to the preeminence of the loveliness and beautiness and value that is getting more of Jesus. All right? And so we could... Um, uh, when we uh, talked about that word, we looked at uh, the letter to the Philippians, which is another letter that Paul wrote, right? Uh, it's actually just before Colossians in your Bibles, if you have a physical Bible on you. Um, Paul, in that letter, says that, that his Jewish identity, which before he met Jesus was the thing that he valued over and above everything else, Paul says in that letter that his Jewish identity could now be seen as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. We could say it this way. That for the maturing Christian heart and mind, good things and great things are counted as good and great, but they're never counted as anything better than that. They're always kept in their appropriate categories and take a back seat to ultimate things, which is Jesus. Good things and great things are good and great, but if Jesus is in the picture, good things and great things go to the rear, right? That's the maturing Christian heart and mind. So in Colossians 3, Paul tells the Christians in Colossae to set your minds on the things that are above. So what does that have to do with sin? If the follower of Jesus... can freely and joyfully lay down good, valuable things in order to get more of what they actually want in Jesus. How do you think they view harmful things? Look at verse 5. What does Paul say? Just look at the first little part. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul says to kill it. Kill it? That sounds harsh, right? The Greek word is nekroo, which I probably butchered because I'm terrible at Greek. Right? It means to stop something utterly or to snuff out its breath. 
Before uh, we had the, uh, the Bible in English and translated into other common languages, uh, they just had the, the Greek and they had the, something called the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. In the, the Vulgate, it says it this way, Mortificate ergo membra vestra. Fancy Latin, right? You know what that means? So murder your earthly self. That's what mortify means. Mortificate. Those of you who have played like not so great video games growing up, like mortify is a word that means murder. Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. Kill it. Mortify it. I'm not going to stand here like that's some easy thing to swallow. Right? But we can go deeper than our, just our knee-jerk reactions on this, right? Like, I don't think anybody in this room would say, would argue with the idea that our culture seems to be the exact opposite of that. We, we live in a culture that, that celebrates you being you and follow your heart and follow your path. You go do you. Like, that's, that's the direct opposite of what Paul's saying here. And so, compared to the culture that we live in, the idea that the, the best possible me is whatever fullest expression of me I can figure out, yeah, our culture rubs up against that, but I can press here a little bit too. We can take another step. This actually flies in the face of what a lot of churches and a lot of Christians in churches like to think about sin. Right? For a lot of people who call themselves Christians, and maybe they are, and I'm sure they are, but for a lot of people who are followers of Jesus, they see sin as this, at best, this thing that stands in the way of their full potential. Something that is on the list of naughty words that doesn't make God so happy. For others, for others, they see sin as this appendix of a church culture of a bygone era that now needs to be lopped off to save us from the bad PR. You want to know how the Bible thinks of sin? The Bible sees sin as a core level, heart level, cold-hearted rejection of God's goodness and his nearness. At a core level, it's saying, I don't care what you think. I'm going to sit on the throne of my heart and life. Forget you. I'm God here. That's the way the Bible talks about sin. Vestige of a bygone era, please. Come on, Woodard, aren't you being a little harsh here? I mean, aren't we all trying? Can't we just be patient towards each other and forgiving towards each other? Paul says, put it to death. Those are his words. And so either A, Paul is the one making a mountain out of a molehill here. Paul is the one that's overreacting. Or B, and this is far more tragic reality, we've been lulled into a hazy fraternizing with our mortal enemy. I'm sure that Paul guy doesn't know what he's talking about, right? 
Maybe we're in trouble here. Paul says, put it to death. And then he goes on to list several things that, that belong in the category of what to mortify here. Look at verse 5 again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Excuse me. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. All right, so uh, this list feels like it's all over the place, right? It feels like it's everywhere. It's got covetousness. It's got sexual immorality. It's got slandering. And then I threw out lying, and everybody was like, oh. <laughs> right? Some of y'all were sitting on the edge of your seat like, go get them, Woodard. And then lying got thrown out there and it got real awkward. In case you're the type, and I'm sometimes this type, that thinks that every sermon is something that someone else ought to hear. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. There's not a single one of us that gets out of here spec-free. Not a one of us. We're all guilty here. When I say sin, I want you to be thinking a new enemy. If you're a follower of Jesus, Paul's word to us this morning is to put off the old self. Because Jesus has made you new. You are a new creation in Christ. Because Jesus has made you new. Quit letting the old you define you. Quit letting the old you define you. In the Greek, that phrase carries the idea of of yanking off a garment off yourself. Like stripping down. Put off the old self. Take off that clothing that used to define who you are. Take it off, he says. Okay, 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 I get it. Sin is worse than we often make it out to be. Probably thought about this too loosely. But you don't understand. I've seen it as a problem. I've been working hard and I just can't seem to beat it. It always kicks my butt. Anybody else there? So what do I do? Because it feels like this is bigger than me. feels like it's stronger than me. feels like I can't get ahead of this. Paul does not leave us in the dark here. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That sentence doesn't stop. Verse 10. And have, or, and have put on the what? The new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So we don't simply strip off the old self, we put on the new self, right? There's two actions here. We, we put on the new self. We put on a life that is clothed by, defined by, the finished work of Jesus and is continually being reshaped and remolded and restructured to look more and more and more like Him. So bear with me a second because I need to deconstruct some bad theology that a lot of Christians and a lot of non-Christians alike tend to believe. You ready? 
followers of Jesus, Christians, we're not called to simply white-knuckle our way into better obedience. You're not strong enough to do anything. And to grip a little harder on that thing that you're incapable of pulling off is not going to get the job done. We are not responsible for white-knuckling our way into better obedience. No, the God that loves you, cares for you, loves you enough to make you His, all right, He is after your affections. He's after your heart. He's not sitting on a faraway throne going, why can't they get their act together? He wants you at a core level to long for him and to draw near to him. To reject all those other things and instead run to him. And by seeing more and more and more of him, you fall deeper and deeper in love and all of him. And in that process, he makes you to be more and more like him. So much so that all the things that used to vie for your attention and your affections lose their shine. They lose their appeal. I can illustrate that this way. Before my family and I moved to New Hampshire, we lived in a small, rural, East Texas town. This may come as a shock to you, but small, rural, East Texas towns don't have much to offer in the way of restaurants. Hemphill, Texas, though, has what I think is the gold standard of small East Texas towns. When it comes to restaurants, they have a little gas station cafe combo called Lane's Grocery. Glorious place. All kinds of stuff on the menu, but uh, as you can tell, I like to eat. And so whenever I'd find myself in Hemphill, uh, during the lunch hour, I would frequent Lane's on a regular basis. There were a couple of other options, but Lane's was my go-to. All right? you, you all kind of know. We all kind of have the same kind of mindset and things. Lane's was my go-to. And if I were going to Lane's, uh, about 80% of the time, I was going to order the Italian sub. And for a small rural East Texas town, Lane's Grocery, the gas station cafe combo, did an okay job with an Italian sub. All right? It, it was all right. And so I would go in and order that Italian sub on a frequent basis. It was my thing to get. So much so that because it's a small town, you walk in the door, the girls behind the counter all know my name. They ask, you want mustard on it this week? No, let's just do mayonnaise. All right? And everything was glorious at Lane's. And then one day, we heard that our small little podunk East Texas town was going to get a subway. Woo! Like the real deal, not attached to a gas station, neither. All right? It was going to have its own four walls. All right? They were going to have their names on the cups. They were going to have those really heavenly macadamia nut cookies, three for a dollar by the register. You know what I'm talking about. All right? And as soon as that subway finally opened, you know what I never ordered from Lane's again? Never got an Italian sub. It wasn't because they got a new cook and the, you know, the, the quality really fell off the cliff. Same person in the back making the sandwich. Why did I stop ordering the Italian sub at Lane's? Because the gas station couldn't offer what the sandwich chain was able to offer. Right? It lost all appeal for me. It did. 
I was now no longer interested in the puny little Lane's grocery and deli, which is weird why they called it that, because they didn't serve deli stuff or, like, groceries, but gas station, cafe, all right? I didn't care what Lane's had to offer. I would go to Lane's for other reasons and get, you know, chicken fried steak or, or hamburger or something else. But I never, ever, ever, hear me, ever went to Lane's to order an Italian sub ever again after that subway came to town. It lost all appeal for me. And some of you keep giggling when I keep talking about subway because you live in New England. And there are literally 100 plus options for little pizza houses and every one of them's got a, a good old boy Italian knucklehead in the back that can, on a bad day, make anything that the fast food chain can make anything that would put the fast food chain to shame, right? So guess what I don't do a lot of now that I'm living in Nashua, New Hampshire? I don't, I don't go to Subway much. That's for my good, right? If you work at Subway, I'm sorry. What, what changed? Listen, if I were to just kind of randomly, I still have a bunch of friends and family in, in Hemphill. If I were to randomly end up in Hemphill tomorrow morning, and I'm in lanes at the lunch hour. I'm not going to order an Italian sub. I'm not. Why? Because I've seen and tasted something far better. I'm going to get the sirloin sandwich. That thing's rocking. Paul says that by seeing Jesus, seeing him as he actually is, seeing his beauty and his bigness and his love for you, all of those things which used to vie for your attention now seem like petty, small things that you'd rather do without. They are in the way of what you really, actually want. God is not interested in your white-knuckle effort. He is after your affections. Okay, I got it. Work hard to kill the old me and then work hard to draw near to Jesus. Check. Wrong. Look back at verses 1 and 2 again. What are the first two words? If then. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If then what? What did Paul spend the first two chapters of Colossians teaching? Jesus is big. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is in control. He says, if then you are with Jesus, you can do all these things. What, what order do these things happen in? Being or doing? What comes first? Being. Being comes first, not doing. You will never white-knuckle your way into anything if you don't be first. Ever. It is because our identity is wrapped up in Jesus that the work of maturing our palate is even possible. I would have been ordering a thousand more sub sandwiches at Lane's if that subway had never come to town. The Puritans, they get a lot of bad press, and there are some things that they did that could be rightly critiqued. So don't mishear me here. Um, 
But a lot of that bad press comes from people who just didn't like them too much because they were better at them for a lot of things. That's kind of how history books get written. All right? uh, but the Puritans, uh, a lot of their writings have, in the last couple of decades, kind of resurfaced and, and gained a following. Guys like John Owen and Richard Baxter and Thomas Boston and, and those kind of guys. And uh, some of those guys are real big heroes of mine. Uh, and one of the things that the Puritans did really, really well was the idea of vivification and mortification. Mortification, we actually, we've already talked about, right? Putting something to death. Vivification, vivify, is the exact opposite of that. What do you think that means? Bring something to life, to vivify, revive, vive, all right? Vivification, all right? So they had this idea of vivification and uh, mortification. Um, and they argued that seeing Jesus and being diligent to, to press, into, uh, press into him and work diligently towards the being near to Jesus, see Jesus correctly thing, actually made it a lot easier to put to death all the other things, Right? That by seeing him clearly, all those things lose their sparkle and shine. Just like a, a really bad sandwich analogy, okay? All right. So they argued vivification and mortification. Where do you think they pointed to in the Bible to argue things like that? Perhaps Colossians 3? I don't know. If your mommy lets you write in your Bible, and I know a lot of mommies don't. If your mommy lets you write in your Bible, get you a little pencil or a pen, if, you're, if you like to live dangerously, a pin. And put a little mark with me as we read through this text again. And every time you see something, it talks about putting something to death, put a little M there, okay? I don't actually write in this Bible. I preach out of this Bible, so there you go. If you're the anti-writing in your Bible type, I'm sorry. If you see something that talks about putting something to death, put an M there. If you see something that talks about bringing something to life, put a V. Let's read through it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Vivification or mortification? Vivification. Put a V. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above. Vivification or mortification? Vivification. Not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Vivification or mortification? Mortification, M, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Vivification or mortification? Mortification, put an M. Um, I lost my place. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. M or V? M, uh, and have put on the new self, M or V? V, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in and all. And we could go even further. We're only going to look at through verse 11 today, but uh, look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Is that vivification or mortification? Vivification. Look at verse 14. And above all these, put on love. Vivification or mortification? Yeah, so over and over again, the Puritans argued, listen, if you would just see Jesus correctly, if you would see him as he actually is, as he's big, as he's sovereign, as he's in control, as he is creator and sustainer of all things, all those other things fade into the background and don't even matter anymore. It doesn't mean that there's not diligent effort. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for discipline. But when you see Jesus rightly, it's no longer a mountain to climb. It's a weak enemy standing in your way of what you actually 
want. Get rid of it. I'd rather have Jesus. You can take it away. I don't need that anymore. I find my satisfaction here. When I say sin, I want you to be thinking a new enemy. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, a couple of questions that you can ask. The first one is, do I see my sin correctly? Do I see it as something that is robbing me of joy, robbing me of God's nearness, robbing me of the glory in and around him as something that leads me to reject him and his goodness and reject his lordship in my life? Do I see it that way? Or am I ordering a sandwich at the gas station with a smile on my face? Another question we can answer is how are we pressing into Jesus so that we see him correctly and therefore see our sin correctly? Maybe you're here this morning and you've got a long history of sin just kicking your rear end. There is a time and place for dedicated effort, but the first step for you is not white-knuckling your way to better obedience. It's pressing into Jesus. We be long before we do. Our identities are changed long before we put in any work. And that work becomes next to nothing once we be. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and, and do all those things. It's a time for us to respond to ask difficult questions of our heart and our actions of our life uh, before a, a God who can speak to us on a heart level so we can straighten those things out and make dedicated uh, commitments to, to go and do and be in other ways outside of this place. And so if that's you this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And during that song, it's a chance for you to, in a distraction-free kind of environment, do business with God. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, though. You're not a Christian, man. I'm glad you're here. As you are processing through the truth claims of who Jesus is and what it would look like to follow him, maybe today is the day that you make the step to to trust that he is who he says he is. Maybe today is the day that you make the step to repent of your sin and trust him as Lord. It is not a decision that should be taken lightly. You should weigh and measure what that decision actually means, but oh, hear me, it is a decision that I think Jesus is faithful to fulfill his promises. I don't think you can overwhelm him on that one. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be your opportunity to respond as well to put your trust in him, to come to him repenting of your sin, calling him Lord. The Bible says that when you do that, you become a beer. If you need somebody to talk to, we're going to have some people down here that can 
talk to you. We're going to have some people out in the back after we're done that can talk to you. Our church phone number and email and plastered all over a hundred things around here. Give us a call. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and it'll be your opportunity to respond however God's calling you to respond. Father God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for giving us yourself. God, in my own experience, my sin is something that is ever before me. It's something that I cling to and long for and chase after and even sometimes order my day around. Other times it's something that creeps up on me unaware. But every time it is something that I make a little decision to pursue it instead of you. Oh, would I see you correctly so that I would see sin correctly? Would I see you as you are in such a way that it burns away the dross? God, for those in here who need to make decisions this morning to follow you for the first time, I pray that you'd give them courage to do that. Would you help them see their sin is the thing that separates them from you. But that you are pleased to reconcile. And that you are pleased to wash us clean. And you are not sitting around waiting for us to figure out how to accomplish the work. You have done the work on our behalf. You are, you are too good to us. So as we see you and savor, savor you this morning, would you give us more and more and more of yourself that way you draw us together as a church, as you draw us into holiness and the way you expect of us. But mostly so we get more of you. So in your name we pray. Amen.